Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 199, The Edge of the Abyss. Last time, the island of Bougainville, located to the east-southeast of New Britain, had become an Allied possession, but the war was far from over. Indeed, as soon as the airfields on Bougainville had been secured, Allied planes started making trips to New Britain, for in its northeast corner was Rabaul, the main Japanese base of the entire area. But what the pilots saw below them as they flew over gave them pause. First, there's the mountains covering much of the island, which meant the Allied pilots would have to fly in over them and then descend. But as soon as they crossed over those heights, caused by five volcanoes rising 2,000 feet, there were below many, many AA batteries set up in waiting. And that was just the start of the barriers to retake Rabaul. Down there were five main airfields and four secondary ones, which meant a great number of planes could rise up to challenge Pappy and his black sheep. But again, there was more. During the many dogfights, the black sheep's corsairs had taken damage. But being a tough bird, the planes usually got their men back home. But Rabaul would be different. First, if a Corsair was damaged, now the pilots had to somehow fly back 300 miles to the southeast over water. Or if they had to crash land on New Britain, it had at least 100,000 enemy troops guarding it. And as Operation Cartwheel had MacArthur and his men, Australians and Americans coming from the west on New Guinea, and Admiral William Bull Halsey coming up from the south from the Solomons, the Japanese were determined to make a stand here. After all, it was their base at Rabaul that allowed them to launch attacks in those two directions in early 1942. As such, they had recently, in November 1943, taken 200 carrier-based fighters off those ships and added them to the already impressive air arm that was on the island. This would be one hellacious nut to crack, and the brass expected many losses to obtain this latest victory. And yet, the great irony of November of 1943 was that the Japanese Empire and the U.S. had basically changed places. Now it was the defending Japanese who were low on spare parts for their planes, which reduced their air defenses, and the pilots flying for the Empire were not as experienced as those men who had flown at Pearl Harbor or during the Battle of the Coral Sea or at Midway or the recent air clashes over Guadalcanal. The majority of those men were now dead. On the other side was the U.S. with its vast population and industrial might that could train thousands of pilots simultaneously, all the while building all the airplanes they needed. So, if an American pilot was injured or lost, another man was waiting to take his place. And by late 1943, enough pilots operating in the Pacific had gone home to tell the pilots in training what to expect from the pilots of the Empire. Hence, those men coming from the States were not green. They knew what to look for. On the other side, a Japanese pilot or soldier or naval personnel was put into a position and they had to stay there until they were victorious or dead, whereas the Americans were given a decent break after six weeks of duty. No wonder, within a short time, those same Japanese pilots would call Rabaul the graveyard of fighter pilots. 
But what made Operation Cartwheel truly fascinating was the mindset of those Japanese troops on New Britain. The heady days of smashing victories were long gone. There was simply no way the Empire could kill enough Allied troops to move forward again. No, theirs was now a war of pride, of following orders, of showing the world what they were made of, which could be summed up by fighting until they were all dead, and that's what they were going to do. The way of the warrior demanded no less. To be sure, Pappy was still being a loudmouth, telling anyone who would listen that what was needed was fighter sweeps over a bow, a whole bunch of them. And this eventually made its way back to Major General Ralph J. Mitchell, the commander of air forces in the Northern Solomons. He had already started bombing Rabaul, but wanted something more. So Pappy's fighter sweeps was agreed to. But it would take a madman to lead his fellow pilots over that island, which, as far as the brass was concerned, was why Pappy was born in the first place. So his plan was approved, and he would lead the first sweep with 84 planes. How things have changed since Pearl Harbor. At 5.15 a.m. on December 17, 1943, Pappy and seven of his black sheep took off in their Corsairs. Soon, they met up with 76 other Allied planes, 31 F-4U Corsairs, 23 New Zealand P-40 Kitty Hawks, and 22 F-6F Hellcat fighters. As has already been established, these planes were staggered in layers, with Pappy and his at the top, ready to dive down and obliterate the enemy. Because there would be so many aircraft, a nice problem to have, it still made the flight to Rabaul a bit too interesting, as Pappy kept trying to get everyone in the proper order. Still, just after 10 a.m., this massive fighter sweep was over the target city. But here, the Allies, and Pappy specifically, outsmarted themselves. Pappy was delighted there were no bombers to protect, so hoped and expected the enemy to rise up in their hundreds and take on the Allies. But it was not to be. The Allied planes flew over one of the airfields and saw dozens of enemy planes. Problem was, none of them were taking off. So Pappy shot up a few of them and then returned to a good height. Still, no one rose to take the bait. Pappy, getting frustrated, got on his radio and taunted the Japanese below. The only response was a Japanese voice saying, Come on down, sucker! After this, a few planes rose, about eight of them, but the P-40s that were closer to the ground than Pappy made short work of them. Again, that was the plan. Now, one may ask, if the enemy refused to rise in their numbers to take on the enemy, as they were vulnerable taking off, why did not Pappy and his comrades spend the next 30 minutes just strafing everything below them? The answer was simple. The pilots being pilots, wanted to fight, one-on-one, in the air, and best the enemy planes. But between the number of attacking planes and that the majority of Japanese were on the ground, the great fight between these two armadas did not take place. Pappy turned for home, disgusted and frustrated. Now back on the ground, Pappy, a much wiser man than during his time with Chenault, calmed down enough to perform a post-mortem. First, he determined the Allies took too many planes over. Their sheer numbers stopped the enemy from taking off in their significant numbers. 
Next, having so many different types of planes in on the attack, well, it was practically the same as escorting bombers, because a pilot would have to make sure of the dozens of planes around him that the one he was about to shoot at was an enemy vessel. Boynton said 24 planes would be better, certainly no more than 48. After that, it would end up being a repeated circus up there, which was not getting the job done. And that whatever went up, the attacking group should be comprised of the same type of plane, again, to avoid deadly mistakes. As Boynton has started this conversation with, well, that attack was balled up from the very beginning, and ended with, if they would just let me run the show my own way, I would have Rabal knocked out in two weeks. It wasn't long before General Mitchell, the wing commander of the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing, gave the belligerent Pappy his chance. Not that everything went perfectly his way. Mitchell had to remind Pappy that this entire war wasn't just so he could take on the Empire's best, well, at this stage, second best, and stroke his ego all day long. The airfields below on Rabaul had to be obliterated, and that meant bombers. To this, Pappy kept quiet. After all, Mitchell, a longtime colleague of his, was giving Boynton practically everything he wanted. So, Boynton's idea was to send the bombers in first, with his fighters behind and above them, which required a gamble for the bomber crews, of course. They had to spend just enough time seemingly unescorted to tempt the Japanese fighters into the air, but close enough to guard them, or else all this was for naught. Mitchell, trusting Pappy, signed off on this. Which meant four days later, December 22nd, Pappy was leading 48 fighters back to Rabaul. Pappy had said no more than 48, and as the U.S. had plenty of planes in the area, he was forced to take the maximum amount. There was a timetable, after all. So, the bombers showed up over Rabaul, and as the Japanese did not see any escorting fighters, there was no sense in taking a pounding for nothing, they sent up 100 fighters. But just as they were about to mix it up with the bombers, Pappy and his black sheep dove out of the greater height and went after the enemy, as Boynton had taught his men, coolly and one at a time. Pappy, in the lead, dove down and quickly got behind a Zero that was flying level, not sure what to do as the overall tactical situation had suddenly changed. With his speed, it only took seconds for Pappy to get within 50 feet of his target. With such proximity, a short burst of his guns sent the Zero spiraling down. With that done, Pappy climbed as fast as he could and then spotted two more Zeros nearby, who were flying at 10,000 feet. Pappy calmly chose the one closest to him. He could see that the pilot was having mechanical issues. Perhaps he had already been attacked, and the other plane was escorting him to safety. A destination he would never reach. As the target was already having issues, Pappy, while still 100 feet away, gave his guns a quick burst. The plane ahead smoked even more now, and Boynton watched as the pilot bailed out. Pappy's job was done, so he climbed and got into the sun, relative to the second surviving Zero. This plane was now circling, looking for his companion. Pappy quickly came out of the sun, got 100 feet behind the plane, and let loose with a slightly longer burst of bullets. Second later, this plane, too, was heading for Earth. 
It's safe to assume that Boynton's bloodlust was rising as he spent the next 20 minutes circling Robal, looking for another target, almost daring the enemy to rise to challenge him. This amount of flying time would not have been possible in another plane besides the Corsair. Sure enough, nine more Zeros were soon spotted at 10,000 feet, and they probably felt somewhat safe in their numbers. They should not have. Again, Pappy came out of the sun and focused on the rear plane. But this time, he kept up his speed, started firing at 100 yards, and kept firing until the plane ahead of him began to fall apart. As he had the speed and element of surprise, Boynton flew through the enemy formation and then peeled off. To be sure, the surviving eight planes went after him, but this is where the Corsair showed what it could do. Pouring on even more speed, Pappy headed home, reasonably safe in the knowledge that his Corsair would get him ahead of his pursuers at least long enough until they turned for home. Once Pappy and his black sheep were back at Vela La Vela, he told his men that four kills should be added to his tally. The men lifted their leader onto their shoulders and yelled out, Three more kills and the record belongs to the old man! But that was the rub. The closer Boynton got to the record, the more he wanted it. And the men with him knew him well enough to know that when Pappy got excited, his analytical skills diminished. Never good for combat. That could be over in seconds. But for now, at this moment, it was time to celebrate. As the next day was Christmas Eve, the men gathered and made their own eggnog of a sort. Oh, it had all the traditional ingredients, including five quarts of whiskey. Soon the pilots and ground crew were singing, laughing, and enjoying the fact that they were still alive and that the war was finally going their way which is when Lieutenant Robert Bragdon said to the boss, Listen, Gramps, we all want to see you break the record, but we don't want you to go up there and get killed doing it. But between his latest victories and the whiskey, Pappy replied with, Don't worry about me. They can't kill me. If you guys ever see me going down with 30 zeros on my tail, don't give me up. Hell, I'll meet you in a San Diego bar six months after the war, and we'll all have a drink for old time's sake. But if Pappy needed a reminder that drinking a lot of whiskey and then flying a plane in combat almost every day was a young man's game, he got it on December 27th. First, he was still feeling the effects of the drink from two days ago. Also, Mother Nature in this part of the world did not care that it was Christmas. It was still hot and humid, which gave everyone sores. So that was thrown in as well. But in the back of everyone's mind, and for Boynton it was front and center, there was the record of enemy kills. Pappy was only three away from breaking the record, and that validation that he wanted, that he craved, gnawed at him. And now that Christmas was over, it would be Pappy that would increase the intensity of their attacks. The black sheep went up practically every day, well before sunrise. They would fly to another airfield on Bougainville, refuel, and then head to the northwest for Rabal. Here's how Lieutenant McClurg put it. The sheep were out there seeking the enemy. We didn't fight merely if our paths crossed. We made sure our paths crossed and blasted away. On December 27th, Pappy and the others went up again, and Boynton got to mix it up again. 
The pace was frantic, his skills were tested, and the number of enemy planes made it a challenge. But Gramps got another zero, his 25th. Now he was only one kill away from tying the record, which was wonderful to celebrate with his mates. But upon landing, and this would happen almost every time, the reporters would flock around, buzzing not unlike zeros, and ask if he broke the record yet. As they were outsiders and Pappy was tired, this was the part of the job he hated the most. And of course, there was a problem. There always seemed to be a problem for Pappy. His second tour would be over in early January. After that, he would be sent stateside, and any hopes of beating Joe Foss's record would be over. And the Japanese were not helping very much by sending up fewer and fewer planes. To combat this, Pappy would go up in the mornings and afternoons, trying to finish what he had started with Chenault. But as the Japanese had backed off in trying to take out the Corsairs harassing them, Pappy was simply flying to and from Rabaul with nothing to show for it, and the stress was getting to him. This went on for a few days, and on December 30th, Pappy snapped. Once again, climbing down from his plane, a reporter asked for the umpteenth time if Pappy had tied Rickenbacker's and Foss's record, to which Boyington, finally having a perceived enemy in front of him, shouted, God damn it, why don't you guys leave me alone? I don't know if I'm going to break it or not. Just leave me alone until I do or go down trying. This got the attention of Doc Reams, who could see that Pappy was sliding down into a black hole, an abyss, if you will, so asked the squadron commander to take a break from flying. Pappy stayed relatively calm in responding to Reams, but he made it clear he had not come this close to just walk away. Around the same time, Pappy had told a reporter, Fred Hampson, one he felt he could talk to, that he felt like crap. And indeed, it was at this time that Boynton's inner reserve was being tapped and tested. He also told Hampson that he was always wondering if people respected or at least accepted him which is a common feeling with alcoholics and those who had a troubled childhood. Much of this got back to the black sheep who decided not to talk about their record anymore, not if it was going to get their beloved but troubled leader killed. Of course, the press did not let up. They wanted a story. They and America wanted a hero, no matter what it cost the black sheep. So, the pace continued Pappy drank a lot at night, trying to forget everything, but the press were always there to remind him, which may go a long way to explaining what happened next. Pappy, for all his dogged determination, his desire for revenge, to show the world what he could do, lost his focus and was shot down and captured. But that's another story.